You're listening to Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth. I'm John Worsey, and in this series, we're hearing from researchers about their thoughts and ideas on how life is changing long-term as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. This time, we're looking at how democracy has faced increasing pressure in the face of pandemic control measures introduced by governments around the world. We'll be finding out what sort of narratives and questions are being discussed in order to future-proof human rights in the face of temporary legislation and rules. And here in the UK, we'll be asking what the impact has been on the relationship between public and police as a result of enforcement. We'll also be looking at the rise in hate crime, both online and offline during the pandemic, and how tackling it needs participation across all levels of society and governance. In 2020, across many parts of the world, governments introduced measures to control the spread of the COVID-19 virus. But this created tensions where prior personal freedoms became suddenly limited. Here in the UK, police forces found themselves in a new role in enforcing emergency legislation. Dr. Sarah Charman is a reader in criminology at the Institute of Criminal Justice Studies here at the University of Portsmouth. Sarah's been carrying out research into the impact of the pandemic upon police and the public. We've been looking at issues like organisational resilience, like police well-being, but we've also been looking at public levels of compliance and public attitudes towards the police as well. So we've been analysing body-worn video footage, we've conducted video diaries, surveys of police and public, interviews with police and public, and also focus groups with senior leaders. So we've amassed an enormous amount of data on what the changes within the pandemic have meant for the police and the public. Around the world, the impacts of limited freedom of movement were intense. These impacts ranged from limited access to safe or consistent work and income for some communities, limited social support for isolated individuals, as well as increased pressures in domestic environments. Leila Chacrone is a professor of international law and director of the University of Portsmouth's Democratic Citizenship Research Theme. Leila explained how the COVID-19 crisis also became a human rights crisis in many parts of the world. Governments have introduced measures to legally justify limits on personal freedom, starting with the freedom of movement. This multiple and repeated restriction risk leading to the establishment of basically a state of exception, a state in which the sovereign chooses to act outside the structure of the law. These use of the principle, the idea of exception is not exceptional. In international human rights treaties, you are very clear possibility to indeed use exception, but there are frames. It's very clear. You also need to guarantee a number of rights you cannot derogate from, and these rights are core human rights. So regardless of the circumstances, countries must protect core human rights, the right to life, prohibition of torture and slavery, and judicial guarantees, including the right to a fair trial, legal personality, freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. And as we have seen throughout the world, these very core human rights have not been protected, have not been respected. Leila highlighted three thematic elements that concern her in narratives she's seen played out around the world. Science has been used as a very ambiguous weapon 
calling upon reason, rationality, discipline. The body is disciplined in the name of science. So that's extremely powerful. Also then fear, the fear of what? The fear of the virus. But more powerful than the fear of the virus, the fear of others. Others' bodies are simple vehicles of deaths, other, the foreign, but also your own family members. And the last tool I'd like to address briefly is the idea of greed. You have a sort of paternalistic state, you may say in a more diplomatic manner, a Canadian state, providing us with everything, providing for our needs, giving us resources. But there's a sort of exchange here for a form of economic contentment called prosperity to buy silence. Sounds scary. But that's not to say these tools are always used with the deliberate intention of undermining democracy. Of course, this is really difficult. And again, you know, we're not scientists, we're not uh, at the government, we're not taking decisions. So one may say, well, it's very easy to think and speak. It's more difficult to take, you know, decisions and actions. Speaking for the UK, just what sort of impact has the funding of such resources had on the police force during the pandemic? Sarah shared some of her observations. The police have lost enormous amounts of numbers over the last 10 years through stringent cuts to police budgets. And what that's meant has been that even though we have seen a, an increase in numbers in, in very recent years, we're still not up to the levels we were in 2010, for example. And what you've got is an awful lot of very, very young in-service police officers and the impact of having to be on the front line during this pandemic may be very, very severe on those officers because of the underfunding we've seen in, in policing services over recent years. Underfunding in all sorts of areas of public life and public health, which have no doubt exacerbated the situation that we're now in. Sarah explored people's responses to compliance during the pandemic. And she found that the way we measured our own behaviours versus those of strangers differed. Well, we saw some really interesting results on this with the research that we've been doing, because we asked questions about people's perceptions of their own levels of compliance, and additionally, how well they thought other people complied. And what was really interesting is that the further individuals and groups of people were removed from the respondent's own social environment, the more likely the respondent was to think that they weren't complying. So, for example, I would see myself as being very compliant, along with my immediate family, perhaps my mum down the road. My friends, perhaps my neighbours, I would see as quite compliant. But other people were considered very much to be non-compliant. And this is really close to other research that's been going on as well, which finds there was a YouGov survey recently that's found that 91% of adults said that they would act responsibly as lockdown measures eased, but they felt that only about a quarter of other people would do that. People believe that other people throughout this pandemic have not obeyed the restrictions in the way that they should have done, when in fact the reality is that many people have. As changes to individual rights were imposed at pace at a time of enormous fear and uncertainty, we saw a rise in protest and public solidarity in 2020 both online and offline. In a wave of activity following the assassination of US citizen George Floyd by police in his home nation, people united behind the Black Lives Matter movement in public demonstrations across the world. Later in the year, the abduction and murder of Sarah Everard from a South London street resulted in a physical vigil where police clashed with crowds. 
Police present at protests and gatherings in 2020 were placed in a position where they had also become enforcers of social distancing legislation. Amidst public uncertainty over what was permissible, this presented a challenge to the normal police role in supporting public events. There have been big problems around messaging coming from the government and there have been big problems as well in understanding those changes to legislation from the police because the police have suddenly been given a new role as national public health enforcers which was completely new to them and very unexpected so certainly in the early stage of the pandemic I think we also saw tensions arise because of that confusion police forces were confusing what was guidance and what was law they were attempting to enforce aspects of guidance that weren't in the regulations so I think tensions were, were, were quite strong in the early days of the pandemic when we were seeing such constant variations in lockdown regulations. We've seen a lot of changes in the way that the police have operated in particular. We've seen a heavy move much more towards enforcement. So at the beginning of the pandemic, the police in the UK adopted the four E's approach of engage, explain, encourage and enforce. And this was well liked by the public. But we've got to be really careful that we don't respond to the loudest voices in a way, those loud voices that want this more authoritarian style of policing, particularly when it's directed at other people and not themselves. Um, and we've also seen changes in policing styles in relation to protest as well. And we've got new proposed legislation in the UK around protest in the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. And within that, the Home Secretary is the one who defines what serious disruption is and then has the ability to impose conditions on people's right to protest. And we're at that time now where fear has been invoked within the population that actually the many members of the public will be quite willing to accept these curbs on their right to protest in the aim of safety and national security. But the, the, the legislation itself is, is very restrictive in terms of what we're able to do. I think the job of the police has been quite horrible because they had to take measures which often were quite unjust and in which it was probably very difficult for them to, to, to believe, really, not to mention that the legality of these measures was very thin. So the, the very fact that the state has subcontracted this policing, this uh, management of the crisis to professional organisation, including the police, is also something very worrying. Introducing new legislation is, in normal times, a hotly debated matter. Is there a risk that rushing emergency acts through could create injustice? Leila says we must be mindful of hurrying through temporary laws that could undermine our democratic status quo or contribute to polarising narratives. Also, something really interesting Sarah mentioned is the idea of absence of transparency, because not publishing the text, changing the rules all the time, this instability is what we call arbitrariness. So you never know on what ground you're going to be judged, really, how you can act, how you can live your life. Emergency legislation, as we said, you know, this is a trend which is here to stay, I'm afraid, or has stayed. I hope it's not here to stay, but we've seen that for years now. We've seen that around 9-11. You all remember terrorism and emergency legislation which had been passed at that time in the US. Same sort of legislation against terrorism in France, for example, there to stay for months in the name of fighting against the other again. Same legislation in Turkey against what? Again, 
dissent, political dissent. So I'm afraid these two, you can call emergency legislation or state of exception, has stayed here for many years. And this is extremely worrying because now the new excuse is the pandemic. But what's going to be the next excuse to live our lives between brackets, really, in a time frame which is not the normal time frame, but that of an exception, but an exception which stays. And I think in policing terms, we really need to get back to a model of policing by consent, because policing by consent is always going to be that balance between negative and positive rights. But I think what the pandemic has done is to really threaten that delicate status of what policing by consent is. It's very, been very difficult for the police service. They've, they've had to enforce these, these freedom threatening restrictions. But at the same time, they've been trying to maintain levels of public confidence and public satisfaction and, and legitimacy. But we need to get back to a, to a style of policing and a, and a style of legislation which focuses much more on policing as the norm rather than, as Leila's been saying, policing by exception. Some nuanced points from Sarah and Leila. But does this mean that UK democracy is facing crisis? Or does a strong public conversation around control measures and state legislation show that it's alive and well? Well, I think, you know, no matter what the pandemic has been, no matter what the sort of uh, extreme response by the government, the citizens have been very resilient. When you think about the Black Lives Matters movement, when you think about certain elect- electoral victory or results in everywhere in the world in favour of more democratic regimes, the year has also been a year of fight, a year of resilience, a year of fight for democracy. So this is pretty encouraging. So hopefully, you know, again, uh, some change is going to come from the people in a positive way. And I think it would be great to see policing return to a concentration on public confidence and legitimacy rather than enforcement. Policing by consent model relies on people wanting to comply. It it encourages an internal desire to comply rather than a requirement to comply. So we need to get back to that more normative compliance rather than the instrumental compliance that we've seen during the pandemic. But I think we must also remember the impact of this upon people who have worked front and centre of the pandemic, because I think good policing in particular also requires police officers who've got high levels of self-legitimacy, and that requires them to have a reasonable level of well-being. And what we've discovered in our research during this pandemic is that the well-being levels of police officers, particularly those at the front line, and particularly those with caring responsibilities, has been seriously damaged by the pandemic. We found over half of them suffering anxiety, a third of officers feeling less safe during the pandemic. And we need to be careful that although we can admire resilience in those who've been front and centre, we need to think long term about the challenges that may lie ahead. And I think policing generally is going to have huge challenges lying ahead in terms of public expectations as well. Leila and I have been talking about that polarisation, that us versus them and that othering. And although it's it's not the role of the police to solve any of that and to and to heal the divisions and the distrust which are within our public, they probably will in reality find that they play quite a central role in that as the post-pandemic world evolves. So we need to get back to thinking about the, the positives of, of good policing, for example, like communication, like visibility and like fairness, which are actually the, the fundamentals of what's legitimate within a state police. During the pandemic, police records of hate crime towards people of East and Southeast Asian descent in Britain soared. Between January and June 2020, 
The Met Police identified 457 crimes against people who self-identified as Chinese. The Met figure for March of 2020, when national lockdown was imposed, saw a figure three times that of previous years. But hate crime, be it racist or otherwise, is not a problem that occurs only during times of increased national pressure. I wanted to understand more about the patterns and long-term impact of this rise on attitudes and policy-making going forwards. Dr. Lisa Segura and Gemma Tyson are senior lecturers in criminology at the Institute of Criminal Justice Studies. Lisa has an interest in cybercrime. I have been researching the field of cybercrime for about 10 years and I predominantly focus on gender-based violence and harms online. So I look at things like technology-facilitated domestic abuse and sexual violence, as well as online misogyny. Gemma's interest lies in the policing of hate crime. I've done research before that's focused on policing of disabled hate crime and the experiences of both service users and service providers. But I'm involved in a number of independent advisory group scrutiny panels that focus on on, on hate crime, whether that's with the police or, or CPS at national and local levels. She says even with the increased reporting of hate crime, the problem could be even more extensive than realised. What we know with hate crime more generally is that hate crime is underreported. Crimes are underreported, hate crime specifically underreported. There will be a number of other experiences that we aren't capturing and experiences of victimisation that we're not capturing. In terms of the forms, a hate crime ranges from, you know, the those verbal um, abusive comments that are shouted at people in the street to the physical abuse. And we've seen some instances over the last few months in Southampton with a lecturer in Southampton who was physically assaulted. And I think verbal abuse can be really harmful and when we often talk about victimisation, low-level abuse and perhaps not really capturing the impact and the experiences of, of victims with hate crime, it's not just that verbal abuse but it's also knowing that you've been targeted because of a characteristic, something about your own identity which is the, the target of the, of the hostility and the abuse that's been sent your way. Lisa thinks that online platforms have allowed fear-based narratives to run unchallenged and give validation to racist ideas during the COVID-19 pandemic. Trying to sort of get to the motivation behind this is really difficult. But what we do see online, which is reinforced in sort of traditional offline media as well, are these narratives of stereotyping and scapegoating often from people with quite prominent platforms as well. I think we need to really take into account that sort of wider socio-political climate that we're in. So where you have got people from other countries being othered and blamed. If we set it in the context within, obviously, the pandemic, obviously we had the former POTUS who validated people's fears, people's blame upon East, Southeast Asian Asian persons. And what we see online is that they're just constantly being reproduced in those like echo chambers as well, where you've got people just being constantly exposed to those same rhetorics as well. So how do we challenge or address incidences of hate crime? Gemma says it may not be as simple as arresting perpetrators, 
And this can actually exacerbate problems for police and public. Quite often with hate crime, the victim just wants the abuse to, to stop. And for some people, they're worried about outcomes such as arrests for, that, that will increase the victimisation, the targeting from kind of other people who are associates of the person that has been arrested and that kind of fear in relation to that. So we often talk about what the police are doing. Have they done this? Have they arrested? And sometimes the outcomes that maybe the police are striving for or are expected by wider members of the public aren't necessarily those outcomes that the, the victims want to see. Hate crimes are really challenging from the police in relation to that evidence gathering, particularly going even further with kind of charges and those types of things. Sometimes it's very easy to recognise that actually, you know, the, the motivation or that demonstration of hostility based on somebody's particular, a particular characteristic is very clear. But other times the evidence gathering around that is, is not quite as clear cut. Just to add to Gemma's main point there, the police are just one piece of the puzzle. It's not that we just look to the police to, to arrest and just solve the problem, because as Gemma highlighted, that can actually inadvertently have some negative repercussions as well. When we're dealing with a problem of this magnitude, it's about trying, it's actually trying to get to the root cause of it as well, or and even kind of prevent people being enabled to do it. So obviously looking at sort of online and social media, these things around the responsibility of social media tech companies as well to allow these forms of language on their platforms, which is currently being discussed within the context of the forthcoming online safety law, so through the online harms bill. Regulating tech companies through Ofcom rules and holding platforms accountable for the messages they allow users to communicate are just some of the ideas in discussion. What's more, in the online world, the powers of jurisdiction in one area might not always extend to the sources of crime in other parts of the world. The examples I gave before are though in the offline world, but in the online, when you've got somebody that's posted something on a website that hosted that's hosted in the US, the police in Hampshire don't have that jurisdiction when something has been posted out outside and, you know, not even within the country that the local police are, are working in, for example. Their policing, their area doesn't have that, that jurisdiction to, to have that post removed, have that website taken down. Obviously, that we have specific hate legislation, but there's so much as well that kind of falls in the grey areas, sort of legal but harmful when it comes to these forms of abuses. Um, and that's really difficult to capture. Is it the deliberate intention as well? Because so much, so many of our laws come down to intention. And online, I think one of the one of the sort of biggest excuses for abusive behaviours is that there was no intention to harm, that this is satire, it's a joke. That's obviously a huge tactic of trolls and things like the alt-right. And they spread their memes. And, and then you get other people then that inadvertently obviously disseminate that. So they're, they're spreading dis, you know, disinformation or sort of misinformation. Lisa explained some of the technical ideas in development to ensure hate crime doesn't reach online platforms where it can be shared further. 
in the ideal world, it wouldn't reach the platform in the first instance. Hence, we have like G- GCHQ we're looking to use more AI techniques for machine learning to automatically recognise then forms of language that are abusive. So they won't get out there. They won't have that impact on the individual and, of course, the, the wider community as well, which signifies that, they, you know, that they're not welcome, that they're hated. But, of course, the problem is technology can't take into account the sort of nuances of language they're not going to be able to pick up absolutely everything and especially with internet culture which is just i mean it's just it just develops at such a fast rate where words and phrases are being utilized in new ways and new meanings they mean something to particular groups which then kind of obviously symbolize something else to to others and in terms of the sort of technological solutions it's a good start but the issue is obviously recognising that that's that's the first step. For Gemma, strong moral leadership is key in making sure all of society recognises the extent of the hate crime problem and the importance of creating resources to address it. She also hopes this recognition would encourage more victims of abuse to report it. Hate crime and dealing, you know, with these types of issues, it isn't just a policing problem. For me, I'm very much of the opinion that this is a societal issue, that we need to think about the language that we're using. Lisa mentioned memes, that, you know, being able to challenge people when you hear certain words and certain phrases kind of, you know, in your in your day to day. That, again, coming back to that moral leadership, if you haven't got that moral leadership in key aspects of of society it's kind of empty promises in some ways there's no real commitment there it's about being better citizens just calling it out when when you see it and challenging the the the, said the the languages the behaviors something else that's been debated around the online harms bill is about digital citizenship as well it's very much about that bystander approach about well what can you do if you see Uh, abuse happening online. In a way, it might actually be easier to report it online. You've got the safety of being behind your computer screen. You know, you can remain anonymous. Ordinarily, yes, there is there is a backlash to if there's a big public event. So the amount of racism, particularly from white supremacist groups online in relation to obviously Black Lives Matter, racist speech from those particular groups. So yes, it's definitely possible to sort of track those trends when you see something big happen in the in the in the public domain. The media then reports on it, and yes. Certain ideologies definitely seem to come to the forefront in response. So how specific was the hate crime response to the pandemic? Gemma says the pattern is a familiar one. When we look back at you, the, the terrorist attacks in London and Manchester in 2017, we saw you know, increased reports of Islamophobic, anti-Muslim hatred that followed that. Look at the EU referendum and you know the, the narratives and the kind of the experiences that individuals were reporting after that. So I think what we're seeing in relation to the pandemic, the circumstances, the context is new, but the process behind all of this isn't. This is repeated, and I think there is a lot of learning from you know, where we've had these significant events, whether they're national, they're international, and the kind of the impact that they have. You tend to find that they spike quite quickly and then do drop and sometimes when the drop comes back it goes to a slightly higher level than what we kind of had beforehand. 
The pandemic has caused us to ask important questions about the values of our society in a world that's both online and offline, as well as how we should regulate it. We've heard how British people, services and institutions have reacted with resilience to changes in governance. But more importantly, that voices of dissent have been raised and important conversations and debates have been able to happen around the impact of emergency legislation on human rights. These are conversations that are vital in holding governments to account and ensuring our democracy continues to respect human rights. We've touched on some incredibly nuanced and complex issues in today's episode, and researchers at the University of Portsmouth are dedicating huge resource to better understand the issues so that we can in turn advocate for a fairer and safer society for all. There's much more to be said and explored. So if you'd like to share your thoughts on the issues discussed in this program, you can tweet using the hashtag LifeSolved. Next time, we'll be looking at the future of sustainability and how the coronavirus crisis has exacerbated a global environmental crisis too. There are real problems in the global south, particularly around environmental pollution and public health. You know, people living in horrific conditions where plastic pollution, I mean, is part of their everyday life. You can follow this podcast on your favourite app and find out more about our researchers and their projects by going online to port.ac.uk forward slash research.